The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Welcome again to P.I.'s Declassified. Today we're going to talk about biases. We all have biases, don't we? But private investigators must be particularly aware of the biases that could impact our objectivity when we're doing an investigation. This is both when we talk to people and when we conduct interviews and when we write reports. This bias predisposition could be held by us, the investigators, or the witnesses, or both of us. So we must always be aware that information that we receive from somebody that is reporting on what they have either seen or what they know about something comes from their own unique perspective. They might even have a personal agenda. You never know. So regardless of the type of case, it's critically important for an investigator's reporting to be free of any opinion, innuendo, or conclusion. So my guest today is Grace Castle. She's a retired private investigator, a former newspaper reporter and editor. She's going to examine this process of addressing bias and give us tips to keep us, the investigators, objectively fine-tuned. Grace Elting Castle is an award-winning newspaper editor. She's a reporter, photographer, a columnist. She's been both an editor and co-editor of investigative books written for numerous trade and legal publications. She's been listed in four who's who publications. And her investigative experience includes product liability, um, all-terrain vehicle accidents, wrongful deaths, employment issues, wrongful conviction investigations. She first operated... Her firm, her agency, Castle Investigations in Oregon, and then she moved to Chicago where she was the Managing Director and Innocence Project Coordinator for Paul J. Cialino and Associates. Grace is now retired. She's retired from investigation, that is, that she's not retired completely, and her retirement finds her combining her extensive investigative and writing experience in being the editor for PI Magazine, one of the sponsors PI, uh, PI Magazine is one of the sponsors of PI's Declassified, and she's a freelance writer. And on top of that, she served in leadership positions in PI trade associations. She was the founding organizer of both the First National Conference on Wrongful Convictions and the Death Penalty and the North American Conference on Wrongful Conviction Investigation. So she has just a, an amazing wealth of experience. Thank you for being here, Grace. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. 
and you're you're calling in today from Oregon, where we're just we're just talking. We're experiencing this wonderful, amazing weather on the West Coast compared to the horrible weather that's been going on on the East Coast. So we've, we're feeling pretty fortunate right now over here. Yes, except that we need rain. <laughs> we do. It's yeah, that's a problem right. for sure. It, don't usually say that when you live in Oregon, but it's really true this year. One of the coastal towns where I used to work and lived close by has had half the amount of rain last year that we should have. So it's kind of scary at this that's point. That's pretty scary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're going to be talking about perspective and bias and those kind of things. And I know you have a lot to say about this, Grace. Um so how do we how do we protect ourselves when we're doing an investigation from letting our biases interfere? I think the first step we we need to take, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because as when I came in um, to investigation as a woman, um, I wasn't exactly accepted in the beginning by the men who had been investigating in Oregon for years. So. There were a few, thank goodness, who accepted me, but most of them just figured it was a business that women didn't need to be in. And so um, I didn't appreciate that particular perspective that those PIs had. So mm-hmm. I think the, the first tip is that, or just the first job really for an investigator, is to, to really take an honest look at yourself and where you've been in life, where you're planning to go in life, but but how you feel about the types of uh, things that you've experienced and to know what those experiences are and how they affect your thinking. And mm-hmm. and one of them, I think, um, is true, is that men have to take a look at how they feel about women and women have to look at how they feel about men. Mm. Excuse me. That's an interesting, that is an interesting yeah. perspective. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, it's it's very difficult to do, to analyze yourself, and sometimes if you have a significant other, it might help to, to get their opinion as well. But uh, I think it's it's the main thing that I see because that's who we are. That's the first thing that we are is either a man or a woman. And so we have to, there's nothing wrong with having those perspectives, but we have to make sure that it doesn't affect the way that we do our work and the way that we treat the people that we're interviewing or that we're working with. I think another um, thing that has caused me a lot of um, introspective or introspection is that you have to really look at whether whether you can effectively interview children. And I, I firmly believe that there are some investigators who just cannot interview children. Mm-hmm. And, and I know people, there are people who would <laughs> disagree with that. But you have to be able to talk to children differently than you do to adults. And in one of those um, experiences that I've had with children was in investigating for cases where people are accused of child abuse. And I've investigated on both sides, both for the the defense and uh, for the 
plaintiff in a civil case. And you have to know what the children are saying. Can you give give some examples of that, Grace? Yeah. For instance, if um, a little child is describing to you um, what the person, who the person was that abused them, and you already go there knowing what the the problem is, what what has been said about what the problem is. And so you go there with a perspective whether you want to or not. You you think you know what what has been charged against mm-hmm. the defendant or you mm-hmm. think you know what the parents or someone who's brought this case forward to an attorney has so said you're, you're, ha- happened to the child. Yeah, so you're saying, Grace, that you're already contaminated before you even right. get there. Right. So you have to be aware of that. There's nothing you can can do to change that, but you have to be aware that you already have a mindset about what happened. Mm-hmm. So you have to really make sure that you're listening. So, for instance, a child might tell me that this person was big, mm-hmm. and then you have to you have to listen to what that child's saying because if they say they're big, that word big means something to them, but it means something entirely different to you. So instead of just writing down or thinking in your head, okay, the person was big, you have to stop and have a discussion about that. Mm-hmm. You know, well, tell me about the man. Tell me, tell me what you mean that the man is big. And if the child is small enough, they're, they're just going to want to say big. But So you have to think about, well, if this child has a father and the father isn't the person we're, that's been charged, you say, well, is he as as big as daddy, mm-hmm. or is he bigger? And mm-hmm. and then the child will have something to measure against to tell you. Or you can say, well, why do you think this guy is big? Because to a child, almost everyone is big. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> and, and for me, I grew up with uncles who were, the tallest one was almost 6'6", and so... Those those people were tall, and most of the people, I, my other uncles who were married to my biological aunts, all happened to be really short men. And so I always measured men against the, the tallest uncle and the shortest uncle in my mind as a kid. Um, and so I really didn't think that a lot of people were tall. It just my uncles were tall. Mm-hmm. And so for a child, if you know anything about the family, that is really good because you can have someone to measure against. Um, and, and that's just a real simplified example. But, but it's important because each word is important like it is with any other investigation we do. Mm-hmm. But it's even more important with children because they live in a, in a different world as far as describing things. And they actually are more observant, I believe, than most adults because mm-hmm. they're more curious and they, they notice things that are different about people. Like a child will, will ask um, and embarrass their, their parent or the, whoever's with them. They will say, why does he have such a big nose? You know, right. we right. may have noticed it, but we may not have. And so a lot of times you can get descriptions that are a lot more um, accurate from a child, and you can also tell whether they've been coached. A lot of times, is if they just 
have no other word to give you. Sometimes that's a clue. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and really you bring up a good point, um, Grace, that applies to any kind of an interview because anytime somebody's using a descriptive word or a, an adjective to describe uh, something else, you have to know what that what that adjective or that descriptive word means to that person. Absolutely. You know, like if they said, "Oh, he was he was really lazy," mm-hmm. for example. What does that mean? What does lazy mean to that person? You right. Know, maybe he sits right. around and watches TV. You know, who knows what that meant? Yes, because to my late mother, that would have meant, you know, that I wasn't working 24 hours a day. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so. exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that's really good. What other, um, what other kinds of things do you run into with a child interview? Um, a lot of times with the child, I think what happens is, is as investigators, we overlook children. Um, moving away from the sex abuse cases, which are kind of a specialty in themselves, and you really have to know the kinds of questions to, to ask. Um, say, for instance, you're reading police reports, and you and I have read hundreds, if not thousands, of police reports. Very seldom do you see a child witness interviewed in that included in a police report, say, at a traffic accident or a bank robbery or any place like that. You just don't often see children's names there. And yet at traffic accidents in particular, um, at busy intersections or, you know, or right by a child's home, I've, I've found child witnesses who were right there when it happened. They were either looking out the window and saw everything that happened or they were on their bicycle riding on the sidewalk going round and round with other kids from the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And they had all kinds of information. I remember one case where a car had had wrecked um, in someone's front yard, and the police couldn't find any witnesses. The people that lived in the house had heard the noise, but they didn't see anything. And there was a little girl who had been watching out the window <laughs> and and. When the police got there, there was no one in the car, and it had out-of-state license plates, so they didn't know what was going on. Couldn't find the the owner was in the other state, and they had loaned their car to someone, but it was kind of a fuzzy information. And when I went out to the neighborhood, you know, months later, after we got the case, um, I was talking to the woman at the doorway that lived in the house, and she hadn't seen anything. She'd only heard it, like the police report said. And her little girl said, well, the man went into the house. Grace, let's let's stop right there. We okay. need to take a quick break. Let's stop right there. I want to hear what, they, what you found out. We'll be right okay. back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Grace Kessel. Grace likes to be called a retired private investigator, but as far as I'm concerned, once a PI, always a PI. She's a writer, author, and private investigator, and she was just talking about this investigation with a child witness. What did you find out, Grace? So this, the mother was saying that she only heard what happened, and, and the little girl was standing there. She was probably about eight or nine years old, and I don't remember exactly her age now, but um, she just said he he went into the house and the mother looked at her because she apparently had <laughs> never heard this either and and so I asked the little girl who went into the house and she said the man from the car he went into the house next door and so then you know that took the investigation in a whole different direction I got a description from her and she told me that he just had the wreck and then he jumped out of the car and ran and she saw him go into the house and so it ended up that it was someone that was staying at the neighbor's house, but no one had found that out in all those months, and he'd gone back to the other state, and, um, you know, the attorney took it from there after he got that information. But it was it was a good lesson to make sure that you look around for children <laughs> if they're not listed anywhere, if it's somewhere where children might be. And, of course, one of the basics of, of any investigation, if there's a crime scene, you go to the scene at, at the time mm-hmm. that it would have happened and see who's hanging around at that time. And this happened to be in the afternoon on a uh, day that there was no school and there were children outside. And this child happened to just be looking out the window, but I didn't ever find any other children. But finding that one was the key at that time. Yeah, and also not discounting the statement because she was a child. Right. Which also could happen. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's it's interesting that that we overlook them because, you know, most investigators that I've met are, 
our parents or grandparents or whatever, and we're surrounded by children, and yet we don't think about that there might be a child out there that knows something. And, and of course, there's you... always the problem that, you know, that children do know something, but the parents don't want them to be involved, and so they just keep right. quiet about it, too. That's true. And do you think that uh, women have a better opportunity to get information from children than, than maybe their male counterparts? I think that's true in most cases. Um, and, I, you know, we have to be careful that we don't put ourselves in the position that the, the men were in before where we get, you know, we discount what men can do. And But I think that a lot of men believe that. A lot of attorneys believe that that they would rather have a woman go out and interview a child. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to be honest, there are some women that shouldn't be interviewing children. So right. it, it just really depends on what your experience and your patience level. And, you know, as it is with any case, it has a lot to do with, with your experience and not necessarily as an investigator, but your life experience, I I always emphasize that because I think life experience is so important and it really leads you to the specialties that you have as a as a PI. So how do you, Grace, prepare yourself when you're going to do an interview? How do you prepare yourself to keep this prejudice or bias from entering into your evaluation of either what the witness, who the witness is or what they're telling you? I think for me, it's, I am, I'm the type of person that has to be really prepared before I do anything. I, I, I take research too far, for instance, uh-huh. because I, I want to know everything. And, and that isn't always a good thing. So I try to look at, if we're looking at some, a case that has a police report, for instance, I want to know what that police report says before I ever go to interview somebody. But then I have to think about think about what I'm doing and what it is that I need to to find out from this particular witness, and I have to think about what I know about that person or and is it really what I know or what I've decided that I know mm-hmm. and and that's you know as through the years as I de- developed my skills as a PI, it became easier because. I didn't try to absorb so much. I tried to keep an open mind. And that's that's the thing that everybody has to work on is keeping an open mind. I know I've worked with, with male investigators who, if you're working on a case where um, someone has been charged with rape and you're trying to defend that person, I've worked with, with investigators who were male and we were working as a team and I mm-hmm. would get so angry because they immediately would think this guy was being tricked or this guy was false charges were being brought against him. And I would be so angry with this, with this investigator who always was a good friend of mine to start with. And then I would think about it. Well, I'm taking the other side. I'm, I'm mad because he's not understanding that this woman was raped. So mm-hmm. we both had really bad perspectives on what we were doing but because we talked about it when we actually got anywhere to to talk to witnesses we did just fine because we'd already gotten past 
what our initial um, point of view was. And point of view yeah. and perspective are very close, but there's a tiny fine line there because point of view can is you're going there with your point of view in mind, and that's not really good. Yeah, and, and you know, the reality is, I mean, and we're all at fault for this. We see, a, we see a news broadcast that somebody's been arrested for something horrible. It could be murder. It could be rape. It could be child molestation. Um, particularly when it's, say, it's a teacher or somebody in a uh, position of responsibility with children, we leap to assume that that person's guilty, even though we have a a constitution in the United States that says you're innocent until proven guilty. It doesn't matter. And so the same thing happens when we're reading those police reports. You, You... like you said originally, we're all we're contaminated from the beginning, right? And and, and so you you have to really pull yourself back and say, wait a minute, who is this person? What am I doing? You know, try to keep an open mind because you absolutely can find yourself not accepting anything they say if it's if it's on the opposite side from your perspective. Yes, and I think my my own personal example of of that struggle is uh, when I first became a, an investigator, I was working with an attorney um, who had just gotten the first case against the boys, or the first um, civil case, had just won the first civil case against the Boy Scouts of America mm-hmm. on a sex abuse case. And so I was working on all of these civil sex abuse cases against the mostly against the Boy Scouts um, for about a year and a half or maybe two years before um, another investigator and I started our own business and then we started getting court appointed cases which meant we were sometimes working to try to prove the innocence of of the person who was charged with sex Mm -hmm. abuse against the child and the first interview I did on one of those cases, I went back to one of the attorneys in the office that I'd worked in, and I said, tell me again why we we represent these people who do these horrible things. Because I have to go interview one of these horrible people. Uh-oh. <laughs> and he just started laughing, and he said, okay, we'll go through it again. <laughs> because he did a lot of criminal um legal work and the other and the other attorney did the civil work and so I hadn't worked for him very long and and he was very good about it reminding me what the constitution said and that I had to go out there with the right mindset which is exactly what we're talking about but that probably was the most difficult interview that I've ever done mm-hmm. in any place whether it was in a prison or what and it happened to be on the front step of the man's motel room, but it was mm-hmm. just, um, you know, getting, changing my mindset to where I thought all these people were so horrible, um, to where I had to realize this, this is a human who has the right to be, you know, to a trial and to let somebody else make that determination. My, that wasn't my job. Yeah, I, well, and, and you know, I I work for, there's an attorney that I work for, and, and he believes he's been uh, in business, in the law business for 40 years, and he doesn't believe he's ever had an innocent client. 
Yeah. And I, I find that an, an amazing statement because, you know, every once in a while you do have somebody that is factually innocent. In fact, the show last week, uh, our week before last, as you probably know, was a, uh, a case that I worked on that the guy was convicted and he was exonerated by DNA 14 years later. So there are innocent clients out there for sure. Oh, absolutely. And with the Innocence Project uh, taking off like it did after our conference in Chicago, and yeah. there are Innocence Projects in almost every state now, uh, you know, and mostly in the universities, but so much work is being done, and it's just almost weekly, <laughs> at least, that that innocent people are being released from prison. So we have to keep that in mind. I, I yeah. can't imagine an attorney thinking it's never had a innocent person. I know. That's amazing. And that was where I first met you, Grace, was yes. at the Chicago conference, 1998, yes. I believe it was. Yes, it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to take another break. I know this time goes really fast. Don't go away. We're talking about removing bias from investiga- investigations with Grace Castle. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Grace, before the break, we were discussing, um, we were actually discussing the wrongful conviction seminar. We got a little sidetracked. (laughs) (laughs) But um, let's go back to talking about bias. And... um, one of the things that I've realized that often when uh, a police officer has been in law enforcement for a long time, they uh, a police officer writes a report based on his own bias. So, and that bias, of course, particularly on a criminal case, uh, he believes that the person's guilty. 
Yes, and and I think that that's similar to what you're saying about the attorney who thinks he never had an innocent client. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, the police are out there in in the job that they have to do. And I I really woke up to this fact when I lived in Chicago and worked there for a while. Is they're out there in the midst of of the worst part of life, exactly for a good part of every day, and obviously they're going to have a perspective and a bias in in what is happening. And so you have to realize that when you're reading their reports, and you have to look for for what isn't there because that bias can cause them to overlook and not to listen. And and I haven't met a lot of police officers that were really good at listening because they have to do so many things at once when they're investigating or, or when they're on scene, which is what the police report is generally from, is, mm-hmm. is from the actual time, even if they wrote the report, you know, three months later, like some of them do. Right. Um, and, and even, you know, knowing when that report was written and, um, and what time it should have been written if they were doing it right at, right after an event occurred is important too because that also changes what gets written down because they're writing you know in between when this incident happened and when they write the report they've had to respond to dozens of other calls and other things that could have happened and I've actually had a police officer who when he really went back and looked through his notes and compared it to the report that he had written, he realized that he had a couple of cases mixed up in his mind when he wrote oh, wow. the report. So, and he was honest enough to say that that wouldn't yes. always happen. <laughs> but yes. well, you um, know, I remember I remember uh, several years ago I was talking to a detective at the at my local police department, and as as you know, I do some uh, I do defense investigations, mm-hmm. and we talked about what we needed to talk about. And then he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. And he said, how do you do this? Okay. <laughs> and I, I started laughing and I, I said, well, you know, I'm not out on the streets like you guys are dealing with the same people day in and day out and people trying to hide things and do bad things and everything that you get involved in. I'm dealing with one case at a time, one person at a time, their situation. And uh, and I said, and besides, some people are actually innocent. And he went, he looked at me like I'd lost my mind. And he said, not murderers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that that is exactly the perspective. So right, it's real, and it's really hard to overcome. If if you you know if you believe you've done the investigation, you believe what you believe. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to change that belief. Right. If, if you've done your work right. And I'm so, sure you, you run into this, and probably with this particular case that I'm going to mention, you probably ran into it more than I did. But um, people see things on television, and they believe it immediately. It doesn't matter if it's something they heard Nancy Grace say on her show or if it's something they heard a news reporter say, but it was on TV, so it's true. Right. And so I constantly, even even today, I'm asked if someone finds out that I I did PI work, they want to know if I think that OJ was guilty. Right. And, and it's like I didn't watch it on TV. I didn't investigate the case, so I don't know if OJ. Was. Well, then they're really mad at me because everybody in the world knows that OJ is 
is guilty right. according to their yeah. perspective. Yeah. And and I think we we do that as investigators, just like you say. We're it's we're human, and it's very easy to immediately go. We've heard all these supposed facts, and so it must be true. And I did when I was in Chicago and working with Paul. I did a lot of um, my job was there with um, wrongful conviction organization is was to review all the records that came in, organize them, review them and see if there was anything there that that looked like it proved that this person was wrongfully convicted. And then mm-hmm. if there was anything to work with, then we would take, Paul would take the case and then we would start reinvestigating it as you have to do. So that really woke me up a lot too to what my perspective was because I had to go through boxes and boxes and boxes of of trial records and police reports and things and I had to I had to analyze each one of them and also try to keep from deciding that this person was guilty or not guilty mm-hmm. and try to stick to the the facts and of course even with that you've only, you only have the paperwork you don't you haven't actually talked to the witnesses so you're basically just holding someone's life in your hands as you're making these decisions and that was very, very rewarding work, but very um, tiring work as well because such responsibility. So I have great respect for these people that are doing the wrongful conviction reinvestigation. Absolutely, and, and you know it really, it really takes you up short when you realize that um, everything, some everything has been against this person, and they've been convicted, and now. They're exonerated, and they spent, you know, X number, you know, 10, 20, 25 years in prison, mm-hmm. and they shouldn't have been there to begin with. Now, right. maybe maybe their life was so that they were involved in other things. That's often what comes up. But you hear this from police officers all the time. Well, mm-hmm. they were doing other things. What difference does it make, right? Right. But it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's that's so true, and the the thing that is so frightening and it, um Paul and I had one case um with a man that was in Virginia and we had taken his case and but we we just could not find the information that he was so sure was out there to prove that he was innocent it was one of the few cases that that we struggled so hard with and you know I just will never re- forget that last phone call when he was, he actually was executed and I talked to him not too long before that and and even though we did everything we possibly could think of to do on that case um we never in our own minds could or at least I couldn't I don't know how Paul felt but I could not ever determine whether the man was guilty or innocent we just could not find anything more than what was in that original trial mm-hmm. but that doesn't help Help how you feel the next day after someone's been executed. So it's it's very important work, and it's you have to really keep your your eyes open because it's everybody. Well, I shouldn't say everybody; that's too general. But so many people, as you know, who they're in prison, the first thing they do is start hollering that they're not guilty, and especially mm-hmm. now right. that there are so many um, innocence projects because they think they can get out if they 
get a hold of somebody there who's going to believe them. And right. so we have to we have to be careful of that too. Is that we're not out Absolutely. there trying Absolutely. to help somebody who's who really did do what they were convicted of. So and it's, it's a big you responsibility. Know, and it's much harder as you know this better than I. Going back and re reinvestigating a case that's already there's already been a conviction than it is to investigate it the first time. Yes, and people are. And the, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say people are locked into their perceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, often, even if it's particularly, we talked often about eyewitness identification. Particularly when it's eyewitness identification that is so flawed anyway. But once they've identified them, they're, you know, you, they don't want to change. They never right. want to change their perception of who that person was, even though, even when they're shown that it was was wrong, actually. Oh, yes. And when they, you know, when you, when it is proven and you watch them walk out of prison and into nothingness, basically, because we don't have good programs for most of these people that get out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, you know, their family connections have been lost because they've been in prison. But the people that wanted them there because they thought they were the right person um, it just can't let go of that, you right. know. They right. still, and and not only is that family members of the of the victims, but are the you know the there were really victims. They just had the wrong people in prison. But the police and the prosecutors so often just absolutely will not right. give up. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. really true. So, okay. So you've done an invest. You've done an interview with mm-hmm. per- a person. You've maybe overcome your bias when you're doing the interview. And now you have to write the report. Mm-hmm. How do you keep your bias out of the report? By, I think the only answer to that is by sticking to the facts that you gathered in the interview. If you start trying to go on and on and on in the report, your opinions are going to get in there. I, I see too many investigators who try to write reports like they were writing a, a school report, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I remember when a very, very first case that I helped on, I wasn't an investigator, but um, it was a case on a on an Indian town here in Oregon, uh, where everybody was was related to one another, and there had been a grave robbing and a and a murder of a grave robber, a alleged grave robber. And I wrote this report on this. I talked happened to talk to this one man at the courthouse. That he was someone I knew, and and the other investigators, the real investigators, I wasn't one yet, were trying to talk to this guy, and of course he just would not talk to them. He wouldn't talk to anybody, but he was talking to the prosecution, and there were reports, police reports, that things that he had said. Well, he stopped and and was talking to me, so I wrote this all down and gave it to one of the investigators. And, he was so upset with me. He said, "Don't ever write a novel after you've talked to someone, whether it's a, it's a interview or a conversation." Which I don't believe that investigators should be having conversations anyway. And I've written about that. I believe if you talk to someone, it's an interview. But but at that time, I hadn't done anything as an investigator. And he he explained to me that that when you start writing 
lengthy reports that just go on and on about, you know, like some police officers do. I walked down the street and went to the door and, you know, and all of that, you get your own biases and your own opinions in there. And so that's that was when I first started thinking about the fact that you had to be so careful. And I think I think sometimes as you do investigations, you have to stop and pull yourself up short and rethink what you're doing once in a while because you get so used to going out and doing interviews on certain types of cases and and pretty soon you build up this um, kind of a I know what I'm doing so I don't have to think mm-hmm. about it attitude mm-hmm. right, <laughs> and, exactly. and you start missing things and that's all part of your perspective every day we're changing who we are and how we do things and so we have to be aware of that. We need to take another break, Grace. Um, okay. More to come. More to come on investigative bias with Grace Cap. Stay tuned. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declass. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Grace and I are back. Um, Grace, you said something I want to come back to. You said that an interview shouldn't be a conversation. Can you expand on that and tell tell me what you mean by that? Sure. Um, I used to have an investigator in Chicago who who worked for Paul, and, and I was his supervisor, and, and we just had really lengthy conversations about this topic because he always wrote his reports and said, I went out to talk to so-and-so, and, or I had a conversation today with so-and-so, and it really bothered me, and so I had to had to really think about why that particular word was bothering me. And, and what I concluded was that 
the work that we do as private investigators affects the lives not only of of our client, but of all the people around that client. It affects um, police officers if they were involved. It, it, it just it's a circle that goes out from us to all of these people and affect all their lives because it's important. The work that we do is vitally important. And so the words that we use reflect our attitude. And if, if we're just having a conversation with someone, that isn't the same as looking at what they're saying and analyzing it and reporting the facts and knowing whether we are getting truthful statements, all of those things that we have to do as professionals right. is so important that using a word like conversation is, is just too simple. Right. So everything that we do as investigators is either research or it's interviews. I mean, there's little, little else that we do. Even though we do so much, it can be boiled down, in my opinion, to those two things. And it's so vitally important that I just can't use the word conversation. Yeah. And, I, and I think it helps us think about our professionalism. And that's something that, that for years I've worked towards just getting people to understand that we're professionals. That's not an industry. But Absolutely. That's a whole other topic that I could go yeah, on about. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. But, but that's why I say don't call it a conversation. It just simplifies too much. Yeah what we do yeah yeah well and you know and you taught you touched on this earlier um come back to the the words that 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 we use and the words that people were interviewing use Mm -hmm. need to be defined and i remember attending a seminar actually it was in your state actually i believe Mm -hmm. um where the the woman that was giving the seminar on interviewing said not to ask for instance on a child molestation case, for example, mm-hmm. not to ask, um, for example, did your father abuse you? Because abuse means different things to different people. And she said instead, and I've always remembered this, she said, ask if the, their father ever did anything they didn't like. And I thought yes. that was really powerful. That is. And it's, you know, as, as you're well aware, the interviewing of children in, in alleged sex abuse cases is, is really takes a skill set <laughs> that, that not every investigator has. And yeah. um, you do have to be so much more careful in the way that you say those questions. But it's, it's good training for everything. If you can do that kind of work, you, you're really can interview anybody, at least in my opinion, because those are the most difficult cases. I would rather sit down in a prison and speak to someone about whether they did or didn't um, murder someone and if we're going to represent them in a wrongful conviction matter than interview a child on a sex abuse case. It's it's just so much more difficult. And even on other cases, I mean... You just mentioned murder, but mm-hmm. there are that are there are many words that are hot words, hot button mm-hmm. words. Molest is one, murder mm-hmm. is one. You wouldn't say, "Tell me about the guy that was murdered." 
right? Right. You you would use another word for that because mm-hmm. murder connotes something else. I mean, it, it it puts you in a different place when you're talking about it. Right. So as investigators, don't we have to be really careful about the words we use and then be sure and define the words the person we're interviewing uses so we have the right so we get the right perspective right and and that's true of almost any word that we use um one of the examples that i used in an article that i wrote on perspective was um just a simple word like reservation mm-hmm. um to me the first thing that comes to mind when someone says reservation is my hometown which was an indian reservation Right, but for most people, if you say reservation, it's they're talking about getting a hotel room, right? You know, and yeah. so, so it's very interesting. And I've been amazed in doing this work at how many people had no clue what an Indian reservation was, and so I start to speak about something that might have happened in my childhood with with in just a general conversation, not on a case, and. People just look at me like, what are you talking about, <laughs> you know? Right. And so just simple words like that. Um, another one that I used for an example was buffalo, you know. To me, if I think of a, if I hear the word buffalo, I think of a bison, of an animal that uh-huh. in Yellowstone or whatever. But I have a friend who grew up in, in New York in the city of <laughs> buffalo, and that's what she thinks of, you know. <laughs> and And those aren't words that you are going to be using an investigation very often, but they're good examples of how easily um, we can be confused in in conversation or an interview um, by what someone's saying. We we make assumptions that we know what they're talking about just exactly. because of our own life experience. Exactly, and, and English, of course, is a complicated language. Mm-hmm. On top of that, so yes. there can be many meanings. Um, Fancy, one of the other things, too, that I wanted to to mention is when we were talking about listening is we can to make sure that we understand when we're when we're interviewing someone um, that we we can figure out whether a person actually knows something Mm -hmm. or themselves because they witnessed it or they heard it or they, you know, saw it. which would be witnessing, of course, or whether in the time between when the event happened and when you're now there interviewing, whether they've heard what everybody else has said. Right. And and now that's part of their memory. And that isn't, as you know, not easy to do, but yeah. it's something we have to be aware of. And it's another part of perspective. It's what is that person's perspective built on? Because if it's a witness... You have to know how they, whether they're telling you what they saw or what, or what has been put into their mind. Um, and again, going back to child sex abuse cases, um, it's so easy for adults to influence what children think, especially in divorce cases and things where there's um, people, you know, that want child custody, and so they suddenly there's sex abuse charges being waged against the father. Mm-hmm. Or the mother occasionally. Yeah, I'm sure you've read this book, Grace. There's a really good book called Jeopardy in the Courtroom. Yes. 
um, that talks about that very thing about how the child protective service workers um, influence the children and what they said on these um, some couple of famous cases. Um, so I'll just pass that on as if anybody is interested in reading it, it called Get Jeopardy in the Courtroom. And you know what? We're out of time, Grace. I can't believe it. It's um, gone quickly. <laughs> so much to talk about. Yeah. Um, I want to just say thanks to PI Magazine. I know you uh, have worked with PI Magazine for a long time. And thanks to PI Magazine for their loyal sponsorship and um, for PIs Declassified. And thank you, Grace, for being here today. Um, if, if you're interested in advertising on PIs Declassified, you can contact my wonderful producer of this show, Sandra Rogers, at sandra.rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, at voiceamerica.com. And we're at the end of the show, so tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators, just like Grace. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.